Matthew 23, verse 37 through Matthew 24, verse 2. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your houses left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, preserving it for us, seeing that we, we each have a copy in our hands. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for teaching us, for instructing us. We thank you, O Lord, for uh, saving us. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased this morning, Lord, to instruct us further and that you would open up our hearts, you would soften our hearts, that you would uh, impress your truth upon us, O Lord, in such a way that not only are we instructed uh, intellectually, but uh, we are changed uh, spiritually and morally that, uh, Lord, we would become more and more uh, in, conformity, uh, in conformity to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to this end, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we continue in our study of Matthew's gospel and we begin to enter into really what's one of the most difficult sections of Matthew's gospel. And I, I think really probably one of the more difficult sections of the whole Bible uh, for that matter. And many preachers avoid this passage uh, uh, like the plague. And uh, I can certainly sympathize with that. Um, uh, others, though, seem to make it somewhat of a hobby horse, uh, uh, end times prophecies and things of the like can really become something that, that uh, many will uh, obsess over. And there are some really outrageous interpretations of, of these passages and many of the passages that are in the Bible that are like these. Um, in the course of my preparation this week, I, I, happen to, I, I always try to look at uh, sermons when I can, when time permits, just to see how other preachers have handled the, the text, and uh, one popular preacher, uh, he, he said that he just couldn't wait to preach Matthew 24 and 25, that he felt that, uh, uh, that it really was quite simple, and that um, the problem that we have is we make it more complicated than it is. Uh, I, uh, I don't know what to say about that, um, although I think there is some truth sometimes. If you ever, like, really... Uh, perplexed over a problem for uh, a long period of time and just stumped you can't figure it out and then you ask for help and someone comes along the side well here's here's the answer and it's so simple you wonder now what was my problem why could I have never seen that there's a little bit of truth to that uh, but that having been said we we can and often uh, do err on the opposite side of things where we uh, we become too simplistic and I think that uh, in many ways the church today has done that in, in many areas where we've become so simplistic and we have uh, our little slogans which are 
are overly simplistic and they end up sounding quite empty because in many ways they, uh, they are empty. We don't want to do that with Matthew 24. You'll notice that we're between chapters. We started at the end of chapter 23 with our reading and read into Matthew 24. Uh, some of the chapter divisions uh, uh, are, are, you know, are like that, where you, you kind of almost wish that uh, they were in different places than they are. Uh, really, our study of Matthew 24 is going to begin with the end of Matthew 23. And we see that the, the uh, judgment that Jesus has been pronouncing really kind of reaches its nadir, reaches its climax. If you look at verse 38, uh, he says to these religious leaders that he's been claiming these walls to, he says, see, your house is left to you uh, desolate. Um, that's, a, uh, that's a strong word there, isn't it? Uh, desolate uh, means uninhabited. Uh, uh, like a ghost town where there hasn't been anybody there for years. Uh, this morning what I would like to do is develop these final verses along with the first two verses of Matthew 24. And I want to do it uh, with the eye to the lessons that we get in it from the uh, fallen human heart. Uh, there's certainly some lessons here to be gathered. And I really have two points that, that I want to develop. The one will take a little longer to develop. The other one will be pretty quick. Uh, the first one will be the cause of unbelief. Uh, the cause of unbelief. And the second is the what I will call, for the sake of this morning, the safe house of unbelief. I'll explain that when the time comes. If you look at verse 37, we'll begin to see the cause of unbelief. We see that it's willful rebellion. And uh, those who have been attending the Wednesday night Bible study will, will know I've been making some noise about that lately, probably because it's on my mind, because the, this is one of the places in the Scriptures where uh, that is so very clear that uh, unbelief is the result of willful rebellion. And uh, if we look at verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I think we shy away from sharing our faith is because uh, uh, the gospel is not always uh, received lovingly, is it? Uh, um, that's just not always the case. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, it's rejected and uh, rejected with, uh, uh, with great force. I don't know if you've ever been on the business end of that kind of thing. Uh, if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, the Apostle Paul sums it up for us in Romans 1. I'll read a few of the verses for you. Some of you will be very familiar with them. He says, beginning in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, Paul can often be hard to understand. Um, I don't know if you have that trouble when you read the Apostle Paul sometimes. Uh, basically what he's saying here is that the wrath of God is revealed against our unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of, of men, women, and children who are suppressing the truth uh, the, with their unrighteousness. Uh, uh, he goes on to say in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain. God has shown it to them. Verse 20, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. All of that is to say that 
uh, we all know that there, there is a God, uh, and we know that because of what has been made. Uh, it's very clear there's a God. How did this get here? How's it being sustained? Uh, how did all this happen? And we look out at the universe and we see its vastness and we see the complexity of it all. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's quite amazing. Obviously, there's an architect. Obviously, there's, there's a God who's made all these things. So that in this case, we're all without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We know that God exists, but we don't like that idea. We push God out uh, with our unrighteousness and we like to live as though uh, he's not around. And um, I remember when I, I first uh, came to faith, uh, uh, you know, Jesus was, was so new and I was so excited about Jesus. I remember being over in that music store telling everybody about Jesus, everyone who would listen to me and just getting started. I really didn't know very much. Uh, uh, I thought really back then all, all that was going on was there was just this different world view, you know. All we have to do is just explain, uh, explain the gospel to people and as they, as they you know, as they come to understand the gospel, they'll, they'll quickly believe. Uh, I thought that really all I had to do was get as good as I could as, uh, at explaining it and and uh, all will go really well. I, I had no idea that in our unbelief we don't want to see the truth. I had no idea that, that we actively push the truth away. I had no idea that we really actively suppress that truth with our unrighteousness. And needless to say, I got a rude awakening. Uh, not everybody wanted to hear this stuff. Uh, I thought it was so fascinating. I thought everyone would want to hear it. Not everybody wants to hear it, do they? No. No. Uh, over and over again, I'd share my faith with whoever would give me an audience. Over and over again, I was rejected. One young man uh, called me a philosopher. He was forever calling me. He would say, Rick here, he's a philosopher. And again, that whole idea is embraced that all we're dealing with here is philosophy. Uh, but what we need to understand is that there's a moral issue at stake here. Uh, it is sinful not to believe. There's a moral issue. Why don't we believe? We don't believe because we don't want to believe. We don't believe because we are willfully pushing back. We don't believe because we don't want to accept the truth. We want to live the life our way. That's what we see going on with these religious leaders. In verse 37, Jesus deeply laments. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. Uh, last week we touched on this verse. Uh, I wasn't able to go in great detail because of the, uh, we, we, were, we were looking at all seven of those woes, and we can only just look at each one uh, briefly. But uh, one thing that I, I did say about this verse last week is that, you know, Jesus proclaims these these seven woes, and he does so in language that's probably uh, the strongest language that Jesus uses in his earthly ministry, at least in terms of what we have recorded for us. Uh, but it's important, and I, I, I want to point it out again. I pointed it out last week. It's important to see that Jesus does this in tears. Uh, because there's a, there's a popular notion where 
you know, you have speakers that will pronounce all this judgment and woes and all of this. And, and though you don't know another person's heart, as you listen, you, uh, you almost think that maybe there's some enjoyment in that. Or uh, as you listen, at the very least, there, there's no tears in it. Um, uh, as Jesus does this, he's, he's doing this with tears. Let me show you that. I, I, I mentioned that last week, but I didn't develop it. Uh, notice verse 37. The first thing we notice is repetition. Do you, do you see that? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's a literary device that the Bible is using to express intense emotion and intimacy. I'll give you a couple of examples. I think the Bible does this about 15 times. It's, it's relatively rare, but the, the Scriptures do it. One of the examples is... When God tests Abraham in Genesis 22, some of you will be familiar with that story. In verse 2, God comes to Abraham and he says to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Uh, this is a dreadful assignment. Um, Abraham had waited 25 years for this son. And uh, he's the promised son. And what is God telling him to do? He's telling him to go up on this mountain and, and sacrifice him. And if you know the story, what does Abraham do? He does exactly what he's told. He goes up on the, the mountain. and uh, We can only imagine the fear and intrepidation and the, uh, the anguish that he experienced. He tied Isaac up and he... Uh, he had knife in hand, and just as he was about to plunge the knife into his son, the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. And notice, Abraham, Abraham, notice the repetition. It's meant to convey the, the intense emotion and the, the intense intimacy that that, that that moment called for. And I, I might say, uh, uh, by the way, on a side comment, if I just might make a side comment here, you know, once in a while someone will actually murder their children believing God told them to do so. We see those stories from time to time in the news. Um, let me say one thing about that. First of all, this is a one-time incident where God calls Abraham to this. God never intended for Abraham to go through with this. One of these days we'll study this passage and what we'll do, we'll see how it points to Jesus. It's not Isaac who will die. It's Jesus who will die. It's not Abraham's son who will die. It's the father's son who will die. Uh, and we'll, we'll make those connections when we, uh, when we look at that passage. The second thing is God detests vehemently child sacrifice. In the ancient world, there were religions that involved child sacrifice uh, God condemned it, he detested it, and he judged the ancients for it. Uh, God will not command something that he detests. Uh, he, he will not call, command us to do something that uh, he detests. Now, back to our literary device here. We find another example of this literary device, this repetition, if you will, in Luke chapter 10. And the story is also another story that you're... Uh, some of you will probably be familiar with. Uh, Jesus enters a village, and he has some friends in the village. Uh, uh, Martha, uh, this woman named Martha, and her sister Mary. And if you're familiar with 
John 11, you know, Martha and Mary and her brother Lazarus. Lazarus is the one actually that Jesus raises from the dead. He's very close to this family. As he enters the village, Martha welcomes Jesus into her home and Jesus and his disciples go into the home and Jesus begins teaching. And uh, Martha's sister Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and, and she is uh, listening to his teaching and leaving Martha really to, uh, to serve everybody all by herself. And Martha's all distracted with all this serving and she begins to get uh, uh, perturbed about this. So she goes to Jesus and she complains. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And how does Jesus respond? Martha, Martha, says that repetition. Says, You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is a really intimate moment uh, between Jesus and Martha. You know, Martha's getting a lesson here. Uh, so we see this, this whole idea of repetition. It conveys intimacy and emotion. Now with this in mind, let's go back to verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. Now, in saying Jerusalem, Jesus is, is, is really speaking of the attitude of the capital of Israel. Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. Jesus is speaking of the attitude of the capital of Israel, which is representative of the nation of Israel in terms of the way they're receiving the gospel. Uh, their hard attitude is one of willful rebellion. It's that willful rebellion. They, they don't believe. Why? Because they're willfully rebelling against the truth. It's not because Jesus isn't making it clear. There was never a greater teacher. It's not because he isn't... Uh, 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 proving the truth with miracles all over the place. Uh, of course he's doing this. Why aren't they believing? They don't want to. Willful uh, disobedience. Now, uh, let's, let's look at this just a little bit further. Uh, this all takes us back. If you, if you look at chapter 23 and you back up to verse 29, if you will, Jesus pronounces this woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That were the religious leaders of the day. He says, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Verse 30, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Now, if you skip down to verse 34 and 35 with me, Jesus says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues, persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Let's tease this out a little bit. What are these, what are these, what's, what's going on here? Uh, the religious leaders have prided themselves saying, verse 30, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, now we wouldn't have acted like our fathers did. Uh, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the innocent prophets. No, uh, it's amazing that they would say that, isn't it? As they're seeking to kill Jesus. Um, that they would say such a thing. And, and, but uh, how is their fallen hearts reacting to the gospel? Uh, uh, willful rebellion. They're trying to kill Jesus. Uh, 
Um, last week, we looked over these verses quickly, but what we see here this morning is that uh, these leaders come from a whole line of folks who have persecuted the true messengers of God, haven't they? Jesus promises to send more messengers. What's, what are they going to do to him? He says they're going to kill, crucify, flog, and persecute them. Verse 35, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Has anybody ever wondered what that meant? Uh, I perplexed over that for quite some time. What does Jesus mean when he says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Remember when I first was reading the Gospel of Matthew, I was very perplexed by that. What is, what is Jesus talking about there? Well, the blood of innocent Abel points to the fourth chapter of Genesis. And it's really the first, um, the first record of persecution that we have. Uh, Cain murders uh, his brother Abel. Why? Abel was righteous. Cain was wicked. Um, and then by pointing to Zechariah, Jesus is pointing to the persecution of Zechariah in 2 Chronicles. Um, now, what's Jesus doing? Well, one of the things I think this perplexes us is because we have an Old and New Testament in our Bibles. And furthermore, the order of books in our Old Testament is different than the order of books in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible the Bible that these guys carried around. You have Genesis first. You have Second Chronicles. Well, it would only have been probably Chronicles. You have Chronicles last. See, here we have the first record of persecution, of bloodshed and persecution. And you have the last record. The first and the last. They form bookends. Now, this really intensifies what's going on here. What's going on? These men are coming from a line of people who have persecuted the true messengers of God all along the way. And now they're trying to kill Jesus. And furthermore, they're going to kill future uh, messengers that would be sent to them. And we're beginning to see the force of this, aren't we? What will become of this horrific travesty? Verse 38 See, your house is left to you desolate. Uh, in a few decades, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And we have a powerful lesson here in the fallen human heart. Um, unbelief is way more than a different viewpoint. Way more than a different viewpoint. It's way more than a philosophical uh, difference. Uh, it's, it's willful rebellion that expresses itself and persecution, and the persecution that takes place every day is committed in the exact same spirit as this. And I'm not saying that all persecution is equally harsh or equally cruel, but what I am saying is that all persecution takes place in the same spirit as this. It, it is a serious matter uh, to persecute the church of Christ, even if it is in the slightest way. This begins us to give some indication of just how fallen the human heart is, which brings to my second point, the safe house of unbelief. What is the safe house of unbelief? Well, what goes on? Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. The disciples point out to him the buildings of the temple. As we enter into Matthew 24, 
Mark in his gospel tells us that they said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones or what wonderful buildings. Um, it's, it's easy to see why the, the temple would be on the disciples' minds. Uh, Jesus has just said, see, your house is left to you desolate. Um, okay. It's, wow. If, it's almost like the disciples are saying, Really? The temple will become desolate? These wonderful buildings? I mean, it's almost like they're saying, can't you see the massive stones and these impregnable structures? Now, this might fall flat on us now because we've never seen the temple. But scholars tell us that uh, this, this temple was one of the greatest architectural achievements in all of history, even to date. There were stones that were quarried that were 85 feet long. Imagine, I, I don't know how they placed them on top of one another. Uh, the, gold, the, 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 the temple was adorned with gold. And when the, can, you can imagine when the sun hit that gold, what that reflection was like. Uh, there were many stones that were 40 feet by 12 by 12. Imagine a stone, 40 feet, 12 by 12. Uh, how would you get those on top of one another? And imagine this massive structure built this way uh, with white marble all over it. It is said that that white marble was so dazzling that as travelers were a great distance away from Mount Zion, when they looked up and they saw the white marble, which was visible from a great distance, they would think that there was snow up there. Imagine Jesus saying, see, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you right now, there won't be one stone left on top of another. What? Really? Well, in A.D. 70, some of you know very well what come to pass. The Roman army came in and they trashed, they completely destroyed Jerusalem. And guess what? Those big, magnificent stones... When they were through with that temple, there wasn't one stone set upon another. You know, as I was studying this this week, I made a comment to Tammy. I was like, you know, it's one feat to get all those stones up on top of one another. That's an amazing thing. But it's also amazing that they got tore down like that. Could you imagine the force of that army being able to tear these stones down? Now, the point I want to make here and I'll point it out again before we're through with Matthew 24, is this, is that the mighty things of this world are often the safe houses of unbelief. You know, when, as unbelievers, we have to find something to trust in. What do we typically trust in? Uh, we run to the big things of the world. Well, we could run to, the, to this temple. I mean, today we don't have a temple, but what, do, what, what does our culture typically run to? Oh, it runs to... Uh, uh, large institutions, typically, if they're large, they're well-financed, they're dressed in pomp, well, that looks great. Uh, much of our culture runs the government. You know, it's a surprising number of people, increasingly number of people looking to government to solve all of our problems, even though our government's track record at solving problems is not so good. Yet pe people are looking to government, I mean, to solve all their problems. I heard a, a blues song on the radio on the way back from St. Clairsville uh, last night. Uh, 
I won't mention the artist. I, I, li I really like this artist. Uh, uh, but he was talking about, what do you say? How do the lyrics go? What do you say if we could rid the world of disease? Uh, what do you say if we could, we could stop all the fighting? What do you say if we would sit down and, and have dinner at the table? What would you say? And that, that I think the chorus, the refrain is, what do you say? Uh, um, people are hungry for peace. People are hungry for reformation. Uh, what do we seek to attain it? We seek these safe houses. Government, science. We could rid all disease with science. One of these days. Technology. Human achievement, I think, is really what that blues song was pointing to. Like, we have the ability to do this. What do you say? All we need to do is be determined to do it, and then we can do it. Well, the problem is much greater than that, isn't it? What's going to happen to all of the safe houses? When I say this, I don't want anyone to get the impression that I think that science and God are, are at odds with each other. God's the author of science. Science and God are not, are not at odds with one another. Science answers to God like everything else does. But all of these safe houses, there's not going to be one stone on top of another. Not a single one. Here is something that is certain. Look at verse 39. Jesus says to these leaders and all else who are willfully rebelling and seeking their safe houses, he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's Jesus pointing to here? He's pointing to his return. I think that's what he's pointing to, is his return. He's pointing to his second coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. Um, the, the faithful, we're going to be happy to do this. We're going to be happy to do this. We're confessing it now, uh, that Jesus is Lord. Um, the rest, uh, we'll be doing it as well. Uh, but we'll be doing it in great anguish. Now here we see the fate of unbelief. It's, it's desolation. You know, you look at verses 38 and, and chapter 24, verse 2. You know, the temple, I, I can't remember how many years it took to build that temple. I think during Jesus' earthly ministry, the temple had been under construction for something like 46 years, uh, nearly 50 years. Uh, and it, that construction continued after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And, and if I remember correctly, don't hold me to it, I think it was in the 60s sometime A.D. before the temple was actually completed. Uh, it was destroyed in 70. Didn't last very long, did it? Here we see something that's certain. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The call to repentance is the call uh, to repent of our rebellion and to flee from our safe houses. We all, uh, we have those safe houses. We had those safe houses. Uh, formerly, in my unbelief, my safe house was basically this. I, I knew I wasn't perfect. 
but I didn't, at the end of the day, I didn't think I was that awful bad that uh, uh, God would send me to hell for all eternity. I thought at the end of the day, he would say, you know, you're, you're twisted up a little bit here, Rick, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll let you in. That's a safe house. That's how I appeased my conscience uh, with that nonsense. Where did I get that from? Did I get that from the scriptures? Absolutely not. Where did I get it from? I got it from culture. Well, there's lots of people that believe that. That was my safe house. That appeased my guilt. The call to repentance is to abandon those things and cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Well, may, we, may God use these lessons in our fallen hearts to set us into this work afresh this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for the truths that you put forth, Lord, in this, uh, at the end of Matthew 23 and the beginning of Matthew 24. And we look forward to uh, Matthew 24, Lord, and we call on you for your grace as we begin to work through Matthew 24. And we call on your grace this morning, Lord, that we may this afternoon reflect a little bit about... Uh, uh, about our own hearts. Are there areas where we're willfully rebelling against you, O Lord? Uh, are there safe houses that we have constructed that uh, allow us to entertain this rebellion? Lord, show us, search us, know us, that uh, you may reveal these things to us, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A final song can be found in your bulletin.